This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to Radio Parallax. We um, often have a lot of ground we want to cover at the top of the hour, and boy, do we today. Sometimes I wish we had a three-hour program to go through all this material, but so happens I know people that have three-hour daily radio programs, and I then caution myself that you really should be careful what you wish for. I'm not really sure how people like Phil Cowan do it day after day with <laughs> that much airtime to fill, but I know if I had to do it, the show wouldn't be as tightly packed, shall we say. Speaking of being tightly packed, in our second segment today, we're going to have a most interesting chat with somebody from the world of professional bicycling. I was in Vietnam last November on a, a tour of lovely Ha Long Bay, which you go out for a couple days on a uh, nicely appointed floating hotel. All right, chanced upon Steve Fenton, CEO of ProLite, manufacturer of high-tech bicycle parts. We got into a conversation about Lance Armstrong, and Steve had some very compelling things to say. He'll be joining us in our second segment today to share some of those insights with you, dear listener. As we come before you now, no one's quite sure exactly what Lance Armstrong told Oprah Winfrey. But USA Today quoted an attorney, Brian Sokolov, not involved with the case, saying, Armstrong appears to be gambling that the public will ultimately forgive him and he will be able to rehabilitate his image and earning potential. We'll be talking about that in our second segment. But let us start today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 17th of January. It was on September 17th in 1893 on the Hawaiian Islands that a group of American sugar planters under Sanford Ballard Dole overthrew Queen Liliuokalani, the Hawaiian monarch, to establish a new provincial government with Dole as president. During this time, my great-grandparents had relocated from the island of Madeira to the island of Kauai. A couple of years after this Hawaiian coup d'etat, my grandfather was born, putting him in position many years later as a member of his college's marching band to have played at the funeral of Queen Liliuokalani. I'm proud to say I still have relatives over in the islands, although whether this will prevent me from getting the crap knocked out of me by some locals for being a Howley on the wrong beach at the wrong time, uh, has never been tested. Moving along, it was on January 17th in the year 1900 that Mormon Brigham Roberts was refused a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives because he was a polygamist. Picky, picky, picky. On January 17th in 1942, American actress Carol Lombard, one of Hollywood's most glamorous stars, died in a plane crash at age 34. She was, I believe, touring the country in an effort to sell war bonds. Three years later, on this date during World War II, January 17, 1945, Soviet troops crossed the Vistula River to liberate the city of Warsaw and grab it for the USSR. Since the German invasion in 1939, Warsaw's population of about 1.3 million had shrunk to 153,000. January 17, 1949, the first Volkswagen Beetle arrived in the U.S. from Germany. The little Volkswagen, or people's car, was designed by Ferdinand Porsche at the request of Adolf Hitler to become a workhorse car for the common German. 
And in what may be the most significant event of this day, I would say, on January 17th in 1961, 52 years ago, during his farewell address to the nation, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower warns the American people to keep a careful eye on what he calls the military-industrial complex. Furthermore, calls for diplomacy, restraint, and compassion in dealing with the Soviet Union. On this program in the past, we have uh, read extensive quotes from Eisenhower's speech, and I would recommend to any of you who have not yet heard it or read it, please do so. And finally, at 4.30 a.m. on this day in 1994, January 17th, residents of the greater Los Angeles area were awakened by a strong tembler. This was the first earthquake to strike directly under an urban area of the United States since the Long Beach earthquake back in 1933. The quake, which registered at only 6.7 on the Richter scale, produced the strongest ground motions ever instrumentally recorded in an urban setting in North America. Damage was widespread. Sections of major freeways, parking structures, and office buildings collapsed. Collapses and other severe damage forced closure of portions of 11 major roads to downtown Los Angeles. Our quote of the day comes from Abraham Lincoln, who said, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. We should probably put a plug-in for the History Channel's four-part series on the U.S. presidents. I caught a part of one of them uh, yesterday and thought it quite good. We have not yet taken in the Daniel Day-Lewis uh, film <laughs> titled Lincoln, but uh, hope to do so in the not-too-distant future. That's the one where the 16th president is not a vampire killer. We possibly should add as a public service announcement that there are no such things as vampires, werewolves, and zombies. Although Mr. Mill likes to claim that just because you haven't met one doesn't prove they don't exist. I guess that explains the garlic and crucifix. <coughs> Moving right along, our quip of the day comes from the late great Carol Lombard, who once famously said about her husband, Clark Gable, If you say, Hiya, Clark, how are you? He's stuck for an answer. Mr. McMillan never heard that one, but he's pretty sure what Gable's reply must have been. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Our joke of the day, and this one was sent to us by Gary, is as follows. A CNN journalist in Israel heard about a very old Jewish man who'd been going to the Western Wall to pray twice a day for a long time. She decided to check it out. She went to the Western Wall, and there he was, walking slowly up to the holy site. She watched him pray. After about 20 minutes, when he turned to leave, she slowly approached him. Pardon me, sir, she said. I'm Rebecca Smith from CNN. What's your name? Morris Feinberg, said the man. And, sir, how long have you been coming to the Western Wall to pray? Approximately 40 years, said the man. And what do you pray for, said the reporter. Said Feinberg, I pray for peace between the Christians, Jews, and Muslims. I pray for all the wars and all the hatred to stop. I pray for all our children to grow up safely as responsible adults and to love their fellow man. I pray that our politicians in Israel will tell us the truth and put the interests of everyone ahead of their own. I see, said the reporter. And how do you feel after doing this for about 40 years? Said Feinberg, like I'm talking to a wall.
Our stats of the day, and this one surprises me just a little bit, comes from the Gallup poll, which says that 74% of Republicans say the country's best days are behind us. Conversely, 69% of Democrats say America's best days are ahead rather than in the past. Clearly, the modern Republican Party is not following the lead of Abraham Lincoln on the subject of optimism. And speaking of Republicans and Israel, it's expected that President Obama's nomination of maverick former GOP Senator Chuck Hagel to be his Secretary of Defense is likely to result in some bruising confirmation hearings. Here's a bit of reporting I love on the topic. According to The Week, Republican senators vowed that Hagel, who would replace the retiring Leon Panetta, would face tough questioning during his confirmation hearings. In 2002, he angered Republicans by warning that invading Iraq could lead to chaos and a violent struggle between Sunnis and Shiites. Well, you can see why the Republicans might be up in arms over that, being such an inaccurate prediction of the future. So we certainly hope they grill him on statements like that. Hegel's also in a bit of trouble with the Jewish groups who have noted that Hegel has objected to tough sanctions against Iran and once referred to pro-Israel groups in Washington as, quote, the Jewish lobby, unquote. Commenting on, uh, on that statement, the Orange County Register, an editorial, claimed that his 2006 Jewish lobby comments could have been pulled from the anti-Semitic tract The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In fact, there is no Jewish lobby on Capitol Hill, just a group of concerned people who support Israel's security. Now, oddly enough, we may be the only radio program that I can think of that ever did a segment on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And uh, for the record, we don't find Hegel's comments to be uh, something that could have been pulled from that tract. And this very issue was uh, addressed by Tom Friedman in, in his speech for the California Speaker Series last week. If we're going to label a statement like that as anti-Semitic, what are we then going to call the things that come out of the mouth of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? Friedman made the case, and we would have to agree with it, that the, something like that simply should not be labeled as anti-Semitic. Someone, and we're not sure who it was, said not so long ago that... Uh, an anti-Semite used to be someone who didn't like Jews, but now it appears to be someone whom Jews don't like. Of course, in even repeating that quote, we might be accused by the Orange County Register of making comments that could have been pulled from the protocols of the elders of Zion, to which we say no. You might want to check out on our archives, folks down in Orange County, our chat with Steve Alexander about that topic, which can be found at radioparallax.com. Protocols was an amazing bit of um, anti-Semitic propaganda that dates back to the turn of the 20th century. In part, it's a plagiarism of a work of fiction about uh, a Jewish cabal that supernaturally convenes in graveyards to discuss uh, how it's going to overtake the world by having meetings every so many years to discuss how the, uh, what the updates are on the situation. For a stupid and clumsy bit of propaganda, it has been amazingly successful. You can apparently still buy copies of it in certain uh, anti-Israeli countries, which we have to agree is pretty sad. But let us move on to uh, less sad things, more specifically the good, the bad, and the ugly.
According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for memorabilia collectors. We would hasten to add possibly the producers of Pawn Stars. With the news that a Craigslist seller has offered a giant steel slab formed in the shape of Iowa and engraved with the words, Romney, believe in America. Apparently anyone who will haul away the 300-pound campaign prop, the seller said, can have it for free. No word on if there's been any takers. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the concept of corporate personhood with the news that a California man has been driving alone in the carpool lane with corporation papers on the passenger seat in an effort to test the legal principle that corporations are persons. Jonathan Friedman, age 56, says he wants to make a political point. But after he was ticketed for not having a passenger in the carpool lane, a judge rejected his argument. Friedman is now appealing. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for T-shirts, I guess you'd say, with the news that a South Carolina restaurant is defending employee uniforms that mock illegal immigrants. Evidently, servers at Taco Sid wear T-shirts that depict an animal trap baited with tacos. Beneath the slogan, how to catch an illegal immigrant. The restaurant said the slogan was a witty and comical statement regarding illegal immigrants. Well, a statement it may be, how comical it is is debatable, and as for witty, well, I'd say definitely not. To qualify as witty, you got to have a little more comedy punch than that. The restaurant claims it's not aimed at any specific ethnic group. No, no, I'm sure that uh, Croatians, Ukrainians, and Taiwanese coming to America would be equally likely to be caught in a a trap baited with tacos. And doggone it, we have not yet followed up on our our promise to investigate South Carolina politics and uh, how Jim DeMint managed to get Alvin Green running against him. Research continues. we We will get back to that one. All right, here's a piece from the Only in Spain file, which I wish was from the... uh, you know, only in a lot of places file. But apparently over in Spain, as foreclosures mount, Spanish locksmiths are uniting to refuse to help banks evict delinquent homeowners. During Spain's housing bubble, banks offered 100% mortgages to just about anyone. And now that thousands of homeowners are failing to make payments, with some committing suicide, the main locksmiths union in Pamplona announced it would no longer send workers to open doors for evictions. Locksmith Iker de Carlos told The Guardian, It only took us 15 minutes to reach a decision. We all had stories of jobs we'd been on where families had been left on the street. Yeah, I heard a piece on NPR about this, uh, about the Spanish banks. Apparently they were even less discriminating than here in America about handing out loans to anyone and everyone. My understanding is, though, that uh, dogs couldn't get them. Although we're, we're not 100% sure about that. And from Russia, we have the news that the French actor and tax exile Gerard Depardieu has accepted Russian citizenship from his new friend, Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a meeting at the Black Sea resort of Sochi, Putin gave Depardieu a Russian passport and a residence permit. Depardieu was recently jailed for drunk driving in Paris just months after he was kicked off an airline in Dublin for drunkenly urinating in the aisle. Note to self, do not fly with Gerard Depardieu. 
As we report on this program, the actors recently tried to renounce his citizenship because of France's new higher taxes. At least Mr. McMillan is pretty sure that that's why he's renounced his citizenship, as opposed to France's no urinating in the aisles policy on their aircraft. I've been meaning at some time to talk about uh, taxation on this program with the uh, the Bush tax cuts being on the radar a couple weeks back at the, at the beginning of the year. We have more than a bit of sympathy for Mr. Depardieu and his effort to avoid what we'd have to say would be excessive taxation. I believe the rates in France went to 75% for high-income earners, which I think just is, you know, a boon to the people who create tax shelters. In some years back on this program, Noah Dietrich's book about Howard Hughes, noting that although Dietrich himself had to pay a 90% tax rate then in effect in the U.S. during the 1950s, his boss, Howard Hughes, never paid a thing. Not because he didn't have any earnings, but because of how he played the game. But if we're going to talk taxes, we're going to have to have the right guest on, and um, uh, that would not be today's program. Something else we're going to talk about in the future is this this terrible case of the rape that took place in India, which has uh, galvanized a nation into trying to reform some of what goes on over there. In fact, a quote from someone named Shoma Chaudhuri, writing in India on Tehelka.com, Changing police culture in India is going to require a sea change in the culture in general. Noting that the harsh truth is that rape is not deviant in India, it is rampant and almost culturally sanctioned. Adding that in the last five years, at least 20 men accused of rape have been chosen by their parties to run in local or state elections. It's noted that nearly half of all Indian women have been groped or molested in their own homes. And if a girl dares to speak out about her treatment, she's told to keep quiet since outing her uncle as a molester would shame her more than him. Mr. Pramilin has had the opportunity to live in India for many years, and perhaps he himself will come on to address this very topic. All right, we've got to take a break in a moment. The final item in segment one here would be the fact that Coca-Cola is now confronting sodas linked to obesity. The Coca-Cola company began a new television ad campaign this week aimed at getting on the healthy side of the national debate over obesity. A novel step, it said, for a company built on sugary soft drinks. Attention Coca-Cola, Lance Armstrong may be available for some spokesman spots. But uh, Coke's running two-minute ads saying we like people to come together on something that concerns all of us. Obesity. Noted Stephanie Strom noted Stephanie Strom in the New York Times. The ads establish a link between the company and its products and obesity, which could be risky. Quotes Stuart Cronog, general manager for Sparkling Beverages at Coca-Cola North America, saying we thought about that, but we've learned that consumers love more information from us. And we really believe Coke is the power to connect people in a way that can help solve problems. The piece quotes John Sitcher, publisher of Beverage Digest and a longtime observer of the industry, saying he thought soda companies had for too long avoided the issue of obesity as criticism mounted. He said letting the industry's adversaries define it isn't smart or in its self-interest. For our part, we're still going to try and get uh, Robert Lustig of UC San Francisco to talk to us about uh, his provocative take on sugar. At this point, we should probably take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for a provocative chat about the provocative Lance Armstrong. Ain't seen from Pepsi. Ain't seen from Pepsi. 